0: He is all of our hope in this life and in the next. Father, I pray that as a result of what we do in this hour, you would renew our hearts' devotion to that truth, that whatever was to our profit, we ought to consider loss for the sake of Christ so that we may have him, to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, to become like him, like him in his resurrection help us to see the story from beginning to end help us to see our place in it and help us to glory in the lord jesus so open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know the story, the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Um, Maybe you know the musical uh, version of Les Miserables. Uh, But you're you're familiar with the plot of Jean Valjean, who is this uh, convict who's been in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And after he's finally released... After 19 years for this uh, one offense, he's kind of this hardened individual. He has been um, changed by his experience in prison, but his release um, delivers him to another predicament. He's out of prison, but he's completely destitute. He's got no money, no home, nobody that he can turn to, and he comes to this town, um, but the citizens in the town treat him with, absolute derision and contempt nobody wants to help him because he's he's an ex-con the only exception to this is this bishop in the town named bishop muriel and bishop muriel takes him into his own house feeds him treats him with dignity and respect and basically takes care of him but jean valjean this hardened ex-convict betrays the trust that he puts in him when he comes into his home he steals, he steals from the bishop his silverware, which is very valuable, and he flees from the home. He's eventually caught, arrested by authorities. They promptly bring him back to the bishop. All the bishop has to do once Jean Valjean is caught red-handed, all he has to do is testify against him, and Valjean would be returned to prison. But instead of condemning Valjean, the bishop tells the authorities that gave him Uh, that he gave him the silverware, and that it's a gift. The silverware belongs to him. So because of that, Valjean is freed. The authorities let him go because of the bishop's word. But before Valjean leaves, the bishop makes Valjean promise to use the silver to change his life and to become an honest man. And maybe you remember the words from the musical. He says this. This is the bishop's words to Valjean. He says, but remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. And this one gift from the bishop to Valjean completely changes his life. He takes the silver He uses it to purchase this factory which he transforms and he invents a new way to manufacture this product. It gives employment and wealth to this little town. And the rest of the story is in in many ways about how Jean Valjean's life has been changed and turned into prosperity because of this one gift from the bishop when the bishop had him dead to rights and could have gone a different way. And so he changes from this cynical thief into this tender-hearted philanthropist. He's humble about himself, but extravagant in his love. He loves like he was loved. He loves and cares for this dying prostitute. He even cares for her orphan child after she dies. Every part of his life is transformed after the bishop purchases his soul with this gift of the silver. And so his whole life becomes not about gaining for himself, but about giving of himself to others. The beautiful thing about Les Mis is that it's a story about the transforming power of grace. That's what it's really about. It displays the reality that grace begets grace. Gift begets gift. As the Lord Jesus himself says, freely you have received, freely give. So if you look at verse 9 of the chapter that's before us this morning, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, by his poverty, might become rich. I wonder sometimes if we realize just how precious the price was that God paid for us in giving to us Christ. And I wonder if we realize just how low God had to stoop to save us and to rescue us. God had us dead to rights because of our sin. And yet, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do we realize just what God gave to us in Christ? Now, the reason we have to ask that question is because often there is a big difference between the way God treats sinners and the way we treat sinners. Does your treatment of people who sin against you look like the way God treats people who have sinned against him? Does your giving to others reflect the lavishness of what God has given to you? Would anybody be able to tell that you've received grace based on how you extend grace to others? Can anyone discern that you have received a great gift based on the way that you give gifts to others now? If you've experienced the grace of God, then the grace of God will be evident in how you give of the material blessings that God has given you. If you are stingy and do not give to those who are in need, then it's reasonable to ask whether you've experienced the grace of God in the first place. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. At chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, we've reached a a major turning point in the letter. Up until this point, Paul's been more or less defending his own integrity and authority as an apostle. At chapter 8, however, he turns his attention to a special offering that he's collecting to take to the impoverished saints who are in Jerusalem. So he's taking up an offering when Paul had met Peter in Jerusalem, some years before then, Peter had asked Paul to remember the poor and Paul told him that was the very thing that he was eager to do, Paul says in Galatians 2.10. So Paul's work included not only preaching the gospel where Christ hadn't been named, but also along with that, Paul was taking up an offering from all these churches that he was founding and then ministering to, taking up an offering for the poor saints who lived in Jerusalem. He'd already told them in 1 Corinthians, you remember this, at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, he told them that they should be setting aside money for this offering. 1 Corinthians 16:1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do, so do you also on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections may be made when I come, And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So it's an offering for the poor saints who are in Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Same thing at the end of Romans chapter 15. Paul says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So it's really clear what's going on during Paul's missionary travels at this point, especially during his third missionary journey, if you're looking at the book of Acts. He's taking up an offering, and he's intending to go to Jerusalem to take this offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so he's, it, it, it's basically a gift. It's a gift that he's taking to the saints in Jerusalem from the churches. And so now Paul is going to explain in chapter 8 here to the Corinthians, how God's gift of salvation to Christians ought to issue forth in Christians giving financial gifts to, the, to needy brothers and sisters in Christ. That's basically what this passage is about. That kind of giving of material blessings is an evidence of grace in a believer's life. And so you'll see God's grace evident in three things in this text. Here's the main points. You'll see God's grace evident in sacrificial giving in verses 1 and 2. God's grace evident in eager giving in verses 3 and 4. God's grace evident in enduring giving in verses 5 to 7. So his grace is evident in sacrificial giving, verses 1 and 2. Eager giving, verses 3 and 4. Enduring giving in verses 5 through 7. So the first thing here is sacrificial giving. Everybody look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, again, I just want you to remember when Paul says we and us, he means I and me because he's using this figure of speech. So Paul's saying that he wants to make known to the Corinthians about how the grace of God has landed in this other place, this other place called Macedonia. Now, if you don't know where Macedonia is, Macedonia is this. uh, It was a Roman province in northern Greece. Um, Paul evangelized this region during his second missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts in chapters uh, 16 and 17. Before he came to Corinth, he evangelized them. And you may remember the stops that Paul made in Macedonia. There was Philippi, there was Thessalonica, there was Berea and all of those are in Macedonia. So Paul is trying to explain how the grace of God landed in those churches in those Macedonian cities. What's the grace of God? What is he talking about here? Well, if you look at the standard lexicon of New Testament Greek, it says that God's grace is that which one grants to another. The action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory, end quote that last part is really important it's why we've traditionally referred to god's grace as unmerited favor god's doing something that's not otherwise obligatory okay it's unmerited favor towards us grace is the experience of something good that we don't deserve and of course the macedonians experienced god's grace when they heard paul preach the gospel to them and when they received that word indeed uh, in Philippi, if you look at Acts chapter 16, it says that God opened up Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And you can see how the Macedonians received the grace of God. So grace, the, God's grace includes not just the plan of salvation, Christ crucified and raised for sinners. That's God's grace. It also includes the application of salvation god's opening the heart in faith and that's what he did when paul preached the gospel to the macedonians the grace of god poured out that kind of grace landed there and paul says that that kind of grace has an open and visible effects effect such that he can make this grace known to the corinthians so he's remember second corinthians he's writing to the corinthians that's a different place he's talking about what happened in macedonia and he's going to be encouraging them to do what happened in Macedonia? How are the effects of grace evident among the Macedonians? Well, he says it. It's in their financial gift to the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. Look at the next verse in verse 2. How has the grace of God been made manifest? It says, that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity, on their part now notice that when the Macedonians decided to make their contribution it happened while they were in a severe test of affliction the Macedonians gave while they were suffering Paul doesn't specify what the affliction was in particular but we know from the book of Acts that the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea the churches of Macedonia were birthed in the context of persecution we know that was a part of what was going on at the church. In, in fact, if you remember, in, uh, when Paul went to Philippi, he exorcised this demon from a Philippian slave girl. And as a result of this, a mob rose up against Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates arrested Paul and Silas, tore their clothes off of them, beat them with rods, and then threw them into prison. That's Philippi. Then he goes to Thessalonica. After a number of God-fearing Gentiles begin to believe in Christ at Paul's preaching in Thessalonica, the Jews there stirred up a mob against Paul, from which Paul and Silas barely escape. But the mob does drag this other guy, Jason, out and some other believers before the city authorities and falsely accuse them of breaking the law. So you've got this new church born in Thessalonica, born in the midst of persecution. Next, Paul goes to Berea, were the gospels well received by the jews in the synagogue until guess what the jews from thessalonica who were mad at him there chased him to berea and stirred up the crowds against him in berea and then he has to leave there so it's no surprise that paul's talking about them um, giving in the midst of affliction he saw it with his own eyes when he was there it's no surprise when paul wrote this in first thessalonians he said you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You've received, This is 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. You received the word in much tribu- tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so here's the, here's the irony. Not only did they receive the gospel in the midst of persecution, they also received the gospel while having joy. Joy in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the tribulation. Look again at verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So so don't let this this point be lost on you. You're not going to understand how the Macedonians were able to be so generous if you don't get this. In the middle of their persecution and affliction, Paul says something that's really, it's just gobstopping. He says that they had joy. And not only joy, but an abundance of joy. You remember in, in Philippi, when Paul and Silas they'd been you know stripped naked, they'd been beaten, they were thrown into jail. Do you remember what happened next in the jail? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. They've been beaten, they've been stripped, they're in jail and they're singing. They're singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. So in their affliction, they're singing to God. The other prisoners hear them. The jailer hears them. The jailer turns to them and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And God saves the jailer right there. And he saves his whole household right there. And it says that that jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Persecution, what's happening in, in the midst of the persecution? Rejoicing, singing. And then what happens as a, res, as a result of the rejoicing? More rejoicing, spreading to this jailer. He's converted to Jesus. you all ever hear that Stephen Curtis Chapman song, What Kind of Joy Is This? Do you know that song? It's about this event. What kind of joy is this? Counts it a blessing to suffer. What kind of joy is this? That gives the prisoner his song. What kind of joy could stare death in the face? See it as sweet victory. This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. We are the people, if we're Christians. I'm not changing my day job here, y'all. I wanted to sing it, right? We are Christians. One of the things about being, if there's anything that marks out being a Christian from the rest of the world, it's our ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering. We have funerals and we sing, right? Paul's in prison, he sings. Paul writes about the Macedonians. He says in the midst of their persecution, they had an abundance of joy combining with their poverty, overflowing into a gift. But if there's anything that distinguishes us from the rest of the world, it's our ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering. It's one of the chief marks of grace in your life. If you're a born again follower of Jesus, grace makes you able to be happy in God when there is nothing else to be happy in. Anybody can be happy when everything is going well. When the bank account is full and when your health is good. When the kids are all fine. When there's ease and prosperity. Any unregenerate pagan can be happy in the midst of that. There's nothing miraculous about being happy when everything's fine. Only the Christian miraculously enabled and filled by the Holy Spirit can be sustained in joy when all of that goes away you know the words of the hymn when all around my soul gives way he is all my hope and stay which means that the fight of your life and the fight of my life God help me is a fight for joy joy in God that we don't put our hope on the uncertainty of riches or on our health on, or on you know, peaceful conditions in our society. We put all of our happiness eggs in one basket. If we would be happy, we would be happy in God. And all of his promises and goodness to us, that's where our happiness is. George Mueller said it this way. He says, the first great and primary business to which i ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the lord further he says according to my judgment the most important point to be attended to is this above all things see to it that your souls are happy in the lord Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition For the last five and 30 years, for the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. The secret of all true and effectual service is joy in God. It's the secret to life. We will not be ready for affliction. We will not be ready for any kind of usefulness. We will not be ready for any kind of sacrificial giving unless we find our deepest joy in God such that all our happiness and our sense of well-being are bound up in Him and in His purposes for us. Until that happens, we were going to clutch at our lives, we will cling to our stuff. We'll never really display the grace of God like we ought to by being happy in God by come what come what may. So there's a reason Paul says in Philippians 4:2, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He doesn't just say, you know, be happy you know, about whatever, just sort of be, you know, bubbly. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It's the rejoicing that's rooted in God and what God has done for us. That is the business of our lives, to make ourselves happy in God. It's everything. And it's why Paul wants the Corinthians to see how the grace of God landed in Macedonia. It landed in the midst of persecution, and yet the Macedonian brothers and sisters were so joyful in God that they didn't clutch their meager possessions because they had poverty. They were poor. And yet their joy in God combined with their deep poverty and overflowed, he says in verse 2, in a wealth of generosity for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So yes, they gave sacrificially. No, they did not give joylessly. They gave with their hearts filled with joy. Take our stuff. Yes, take it. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says to the suffering Christians in Hebrews chapter 10? Verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated you were mistreated for the gospel but also you associated with people who were being mistreated for the gospel and you got persecuted for that what happened for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and, a, and an abiding one. These people risked their own property and security to visit and to care for their brothers and sisters in prison. It's a Prison back then It's not like prison now where they give you three squares and a TV and a bed. They didn't have all that. You put you in prison, somebody's got to come feed you. Usually somebody from the outside. They don't feed you, guess what? You're up a creek. So these Christians are in prison for the gospel. These other Christians who haven't been put in prison yet, they show up. To care for their brothers and sisters in prison. Why? Because there's a need. And so it's risky. And now their necks are on the line because they gave. And it says that they joyfully endured the plundering of their own property. How were they able to do that? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one in God. They had all of their hope and joy in God. So that when all their stuff and security got taken away, they were okay. They were more than okay. They were joyful because they had God. That's why our main business has to be to be joyful in God. We're never going to be generous. We'll never sacrifice. We'll never be useful to God and to his kingdom until we're happy in him. So Paul's saying God's grace is evident among the Macedonians because of their joyful release of their stuff when it was really costly to them. So it was evident in sacrificial giving. But his grace is also evident, second thing, in eager giving. And my, my next points are shorter for those of you who were looking at the time. <laughs> um, but God's grace is also evident in eager giving. Everybody look at verse 3. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. What's the evidence that their giving was eager? They didn't give a pittance. They weren't trying to calculate the respectable minimum. They gave above and beyond what their means would have suggested they could give. They had experienced abundant grace from God, and that overflowed into an abundant gift to the needy people of God. That doesn't mean that they necessarily gave a lot. It does mean that they gave a lot for them. Given what their means were. You remember the widow's mite in in Mark chapter 12. You got all these fancy people marching up to the temple treasury, putting their money in. Look at my gift, right? And then this poor widow comes forward and she puts in something like the equivalent of of a penny. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So in dollars and cents, she gave less, but in kingdom currency, she gave more. It's not how much you give, it's how much much you give of what you have. Anybody on that basis can give sacrificially, even the poorest among us. So we know the Macedonians giving was eager because they gave so much out of their poverty, but we also know that it was eager because Paul says that they they gave quote of their own accord, which means they didn't have to be prodded to care for their poor brothers and sisters. All that was required was the knowledge of the need. Once they knew their brothers and sisters needed them, the motivation to to, to help them came from within Not from some, you know, coercion from from without. Look at the next verse. Look what it says. Verse 4 is unbelievable. It says, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Not only they want to give, they didn't have to be prodded to give. They're begging. "Let Let us be a part of this. You're poor. You don't have anything. Oh, we want to be a part of it. Please. And they gave till it hurt. You know, neither my dad nor my, uh, my mother come from wealthy families. Uh, by the time my, my dad's mother died, she, she didn't have much. She was a widow. She'd been a widow since, since my dad was a teenager. His, his father died when he was in, in high school. So she didn't have much, but she did have a house. A house that could have been sold and the money divided between her heirs, my dad and his sister. But... um the situation didn't lend itself to that. My my dad's sister was a single mom of three and she didn't have many resources herself. And so she lived in that house and she stayed there for many years and dad just let her stay there that he jointly owned for free until one day he just gave up his stake in the house and he just gave it all to his sister. The only inheritance that he had, why? Because, number one, it's just who he is. Number two, he just loved his sister. He saw the need. He met the need. No questions asked. He never looked back on that. He He was happy to do it. How many of us are eager to give to a family member that sacrificially? How many of us are eager to give to a member of our church family that sacrificially? And yet here are the Macedonians doing exactly that. And Paul is saying that their generosity is a true manifestation of the grace of God among them. He's telling the Corinthians and us that we have to follow suit. We ought to be looking for opportunities, asking to be included, and helping out needy brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our joy to give to meet the need of a brother or sister in a tough spot, or at least it should be. So God's grace is evident in sacrificial giving. It's evident in eager giving. Finally, his grace is evident in enduring giving. Everybody look at verse 5. And this, referring back to the eager giving, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And this, not as we expected. He's he's referring back to verse 4, saying that the Macedonians begging to be included in this was not something really that he had anticipated. Their manifest concern for the saints in Jerusalem went far beyond what he expected. But, he says, they gave themselves to the Lord first and then by the will of God to us, meaning they gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave themselves to me me paul the apostle that's that's what he means here so the point's clear he says before the macedonians gave their money they gave themselves they had committed themselves body and soul to the lord and to his authoritative messenger paul only after they belonged to christ could they really experience the spirit of christ compelling them to give sacrificially so they gave themselves to the lord first which resulted in verse six with the result that we urged titus that as he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace because they had given themselves to the lord and to paul paul felt confident he could send titus to them to the macedonians and he it's a a, a subsequent visit for it's not his first visit But he sends titus there again to complete what had started earlier earlier that is taking up an offering for the poor in jerusalem at some point titus had been there before to corinth to take up an offering paul says just as titus began this collection now titus is going to complete it titus has to receive it one more time from the corinthians before paul returns to jerusalem and so it's not merely that titus and paul are enduring to make the appeal for them to give, it's that God's people are enduring to respond to the appeal and to give. They're persevering, in other words, in generosity. It's not a one-time thing. So look at verse seven. But as you excel in everything, so now he's given the Macedonians as an example. Now he's turning to the Corinthians. He's saying, them as your example of what the grace of God does in someone, now you, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. This is a great word for the, for the Corinthians because you know, we studied 1 Corinthians in here. What were the Corinthians no, known for? They're excelling in faith and speech and in knowledge. I think he's talking about all these gifts of the Spirit, gifts of tongues, word of knowledge, you know, acts of faith, okay? So, so they're known for this, right? That, that's what marks them out. They've got all these charismatic gifts of the Spirit. So just like you excel in all that, see to it that you excel in this act of grace. you want to show you have the Spirit? Fine, you've got these manifestations. Show me some Macedonian-type giving. That'll show that you have the Spirit. You know, one of my favorite characters in Charles Dickens's novel, Great Expectations is a man named Joe Gargery. I'm just curious, raise your hand. How many of you have read Great Expectations? That's fantastic. Um, I had the pleasure of listening to it recently and I just for the first time and I I, I loved it, but Joe Gargery is is probably my favorite guy in the the novel. Through a series of events, this really humble blacksmith named Joe Gargery found himself the guardian and surrogate father to an orphaned boy named Pip. Joe loves Pip. He makes every provision for Pip. He cares for him as a a young boy. Um, He's going to provide a living for him to be a blacksmith. He apprentices him. But Pip gets this opportunity to advance his social standing when he becomes older, and he has an opportunity to become a gentleman. And And so Pip forsakes Joe and all that Joe had provided for him. He snubs Joe and basically just cuts Joe out of his life. After all, why would a gentleman be hanging out with like a a blacksmith who's rude and doesn't even know how to eat right at the table? So Pip's association to the best friend that he ever had, to the one who was like a father to him, it just became an embarrassment to him. And he just cuts him off. But Joe never stops loving Pip. Many, many, many years later, after the prodigal Pip had run his course and found himself penniless and in deep debt, dying in his bed in London, when all of his good-time friends had gone, who shows up to care for Pip? Joe Gargery. Joe never stopped loving Pip. He was never angry with Pip. He never begrudged Pip for the way that he treated him. He, He thought this was a great expectation for Pip. He wanted him to To be a gentleman, a fine gentleman, he didn't want to be a a burden to him. He loved him. He never took it to heart that he snubbed him. But here's Joe showing up at the end. Pip's got nothing, but he's got Joe. And he nurses Pip back to health. And then in a twist that nobody could have seen, Joe pays all of Pip's debts. He, he, Pip could never have done this. Joe pays all of his financial debts. And it's this really sweet reunion as Pip begins to come out of his sickness and to realize what has come on. And he's reconciled to Joe. Joe's all grace and love, no bitter bone in his body, all forgiveness, goodness, and goodness to Pip. And Pip says this. He says, I'm just going to read to you a piece from the book. It's great. He says, Joe withdrew to the window, stood with his back towards me, wiping his eyes. And as my extreme weakness prevented me from getting up and going to him, I lay there penitently whispering, Oh, God bless him. Oh, God bless this gentle Christian man. Joe did not love Pip with word or with talk, but in deed and in truth. Grace became manifest to Pip in Joe Gargery's enduring willingness to give all that he had for Pip. It was an enduring commitment to Pip. He would have given twice that if he could have, because he loved him so much. Our calling to be joyful, suffering, enduring givers never ends. We are called to love one another to the uttermost. This commitment to grace and to giving has to characterize us as long as we have brothers and sisters to love and who are in need. Which means that this is always going to be a part of our lives. You know, in La Mis, Bishop Muriel's words reveal something that is still true today. The grace that is poured into us must overflow into grace flowing out of us. Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. And the truth is, is that we are not our own. We have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. God has poured out all manner of grace and gift upon us. And if we would be faithful, we would pour out all manner of grace and gift upon others. Let me say this. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 16, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Which means when you give, you have an obligation to use good judgment when you give. Don't be foolish. Yes, Jesus tells to give to whoever asks of us. So we ought to err on the side of generosity. I think that is true. But he also tells us to be wise. Which means we remember what Paul says about the Macedonians. The, there was a problem in Thessalonica in Second Thessalonians 3 were some guys in the church there who were saying you know what the end of the world's coming let's not work anymore we'll just live off of everybody else's money in the church Paul says "Uh, those guys can starve if you're otherwise able to work and you just don't work to care for yourself it's throwing good money after bad to throw money at that don't give them money you got a brother or sister in Christ you don't subsidize irresponsibility and sinfulness okay you don't do that be wise as serpents innocent as doves err on the side of generosity so this is not a call to be foolish it's a call to be faithful with the means that God has given to you and to be discerning and to have your hearts wide open to the people of God and to understand that not everybody's like those guys in second Thessalonians 3 sometimes there are real needs there are going to be real needs in our congregation sometimes we may come to you and say we want you to give to this And we need to have our hearts wide open according to what the Lord has has given to us. So remember this. See in this some higher plan. Use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. He's bought your soul for God. Let me pray. Father, I pray you would make us better than we are. We're just so stingy sometimes and self-focused. I pray you'd have mercy on us so that we would give as we have received, so that people would see how lavish love can be by the way that we love one another and by the way we express that in material, concrete ways. Help us to have our hearts and minds our eyes open and attuned to needs around us, and help us not to turn away from that. Help us to be wise and discerning. Use us, Lord, in this way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.